It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. Live theater has been one of the major casualties of the pandemic, but this fall, many local companies are venturing back into live productions with audiences in attendance. The Alliance Theater will be among them, kicking things off with Darling Corey, an Appalachian-set new musical from the local team of playwright Philip DePoy and musician Christian Bush. Bo Emerson spoke with the creators recently about the show, and he's here to bring us those conversations. Welcome, Bo. Thank you, Shane. So this is uh, pretty interesting. It's, it's interesting that they're starting uh, the season with uh, a brand new musical and it has uh, some serious local ties. Well, and, and the interesting thing is that they're still uh, like assembling it as we as we speak. Yeah. Um, and both of these uh, folks, uh, uh, Philip DePoy and uh, Christian Bush, ha- have been involved in Alliance Productions before uh, uh Christian uh, wrote uh, uh, a song for the previous uh, show, Working, which they performed outdoors, you know. Now they're going back to the Coca-Cola stage and they're very excited about that. And they're, uh, they're launching that uh, venture with uh, this play by Philip DePoy, which is uh, kind of an Appalachian, uh, 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 like a drama, perhaps not quite as uh, dark as the last one he did, which was, uh, uh, Edward Foote, and I don't know if you remember that, but it was kind of a contemporary mountain version of uh, Oedipus Rex. Very strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. This this one it sounds a, a little bit lighter, but uh, but it's like what what is what is this one about? Well, the 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 the, the story uh, is uh, it has some secrets in it, so I have to try not to uh, <laughs> I have to try not to turn turn them loose. 
In fact, Philip uh, kept spilling the beans while we were talking for this podcast. I, I know my friend Tyson will try to edit out some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, embargoed words, but uh, there's a uh, there's a great song that's called Darling Corey that a lot of folks who ever listen to Burl Lives are familiar with. It's about a, 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 a revenuer and about a moonshiner and about uh, a uh, it's either a romance or it's a, uh, a, a or it's a battle. But it's about the damage that uh, uh, that that uh, bad whiskey does to people and relationships. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a great moment in the song. It goes, dig a hole, dig a hole in the meadow, dig a hole in the whole cold hard ground. Dig a hole, dig a hole in the meadow. We're gonna lay darling Corey down. And that is, that's kind of tells you what's gonna happen in this show. So that's one of the things that happens. Right. All happens is this little Appalachian uh, community so far up in the woods, they have to pipe in the sunlight. Ah, <laughs> okay. So that it sounds very, very southern. Very, <laughs> it's southern. Yeah, it's southern. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Um, well, I, I mean, I guess we we might as well uh, let the creators themselves uh, tell the story and and tell us what's uh, behind this new musical and about the return of live theater. There you go. We're excited about that. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, let's uh, hear from Philip DePoy and Christian Bush. Thanks, Bo. Thanks, Shane. Philip DePoy has written 21 novels, 43 produced plays. Will this be the 44th produced play? It'll be actually be the 45th. 45th. Uh, he's a musician. He's a performer. He's a writer. He is a polymath. He is essentially Philip Marlowe of the 21st century. <laughs> and we have him uh, here today to talk to us about the Alliance Theater production of his play, Darl and Corey. How are you doing, Philip? I'm doing great, Bo. Thanks for the excellent introduction. Certainly. And Darl and Corey is known to a lot of us as a song by Burl Ives, a haunting, scary song about revenuers and, and uh, health and destruction and the Appalachian Mountains where it's so dark they have to pipe in the sunshine. Is That's that... exactly right. The, the key line for me from the song has to do with uh, the first time I saw Darlin' Corey she had a banjo on her knee. The next time I saw Darlin' Corey she had a shotgun in her hand. Uh -huh. So that's the progression of that character All right. in the song. And the third verse is dig a hole in the meadow to lay Darlin' Corey down. That's right. So we, we know in a very short time the tragic history of this character. Well, I didn't even know she was a female from listening to that song because there's no gender pronouns in the in the Burl Ives version. But uh, it does make sense. Yeah, in the true folk, or as far as my research is concerned, the true folk version, uh, she's she's a woman most of the time. Although in a lot of versions, she's um, he is a man. Um, my first association with it was in 1969 uh, when I was uh, collecting uh, information for my folklore class at Georgia State. Uh, I was sent to North Georgia to make, weirdly, a videotape of a traditional chairmaker, a guy named Walter Shellnut. And the videotape machine that we had to use then was the size of a, a small Volkswagen. A college uh, refrigerator, right? It was. No, that's right. That's how big it was. And about as heavy. And about as heavy. And it was two-inch reel-to-reel videotape. Whoa. And a camera the size of, you know, a 
mid-century movie camera. Right, right. With that, you had, you had a, a dolly uh, to use it. So this was Foxfire's time, and this it was, was when sort of Foxfire was just getting started, right. and uh, there was no electricity at, at this guy's house, so I had to have a battery pack too. So I, I came a little like an invading army with all this electronic equipment, and recorded this man making chairs in a traditional way all day. We spent all day together. I got to know him. He's a very nice old guy. And at a certain point, he said he was tired and did I want to have something to eat with him. So we went into his house and we had um, field peas and cornbread and coffee. And he just started singing. Wow. To relax. And the second or third song he sang was Darling Corey. And I said, I always like that song. He said, yes, my mama wrote it. <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, I knew that wasn't true because it's about 200 years old. And I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. And he told me this story that his mother had written it about someone she knew in Tennessee who dressed like a man, made moonshine, and used some of the profits to buy books for little girls in Appalachia who were not allowed to read. Wow. Isn't this, that great? This was in the theocratic uh, 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 community of Appalachia. It was absolutely in the paternalistic uh, world where uh, girls were, their primary education was learning to make field peas and cornbread <laughs> and, uh, and uh, singing in the church choir, uh, but not really allowed to go to school most of the time. Now, Philip, do you want to adjourn to where there's no chainsaws in the background? I'm just recognizing that there... We do have a little background chorus. Airplanes. Why don't we adjourn to the silence of the meditation? Let's go there to the cone of silence. We're back again. In the, be in the beauty of silence. We're in the cone of silence. In the cone of silence. So you were uh, there recording um, uh, a fellow who uh, really felt like that song was his song, or at least his mother's song. He was absolutely convinced that his mother had written it, because that's the only version he'd ever heard, his mother singing it to him. And that's folk music right there. Yeah, the whole idea, the academic idea of folk anything is that it has to be transmitted orally or observably. You can't have heard it recorded or on the radio or in any other way. You had to have heard it in person, live, um, uh, or it wasn't uh, what, what they used to refer to as true folk. So now there is no more folk music because it's all been obliterated by worldwide media. I mean, I think media. you could probably say that, there, that that folk world is gone forever. Right. Um, and it existed from the beginning of human history until maybe this century. Right. Because there might have been some you know, corners somewhere in the, in the late 20th century. That, that weren't touched by media, but now, uh, now that's right. That, that definition of folklore and folk ways is, is historical rather than current. On the other hand, this play is going to in, incorporate what, what are elements of, of what used to be folk music and itself is sort of uh, a, a folk music creation, isn't it? It started that way. <laughs> Uh, but uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, when I proposed this idea to, uh, to Susan uh, Booth at the Alliance Theater, 
Uh, she immediately took it to Christian Bush, the uh, other half, second half, first half, partly part of Sugarland. Right. Uh, a, a great songwriter, and um, they had been looking for a project to do with Christian, and they dug this story idea, the, of the story that Walter Shelnut told me in 1969. Um, <clears throat> And uh, we had our first meeting in Susan's office, I don't know, it had to be almost two years ago at this point. And Christian and I hit it off. We before started, you knew everything was going to fall apart. Exactly. Way before we knew that anything was going to get interrupted by 2020. And we were very excited, all very excited about the ideas. Uh, and uh, let me just be very clear, this is a musical not a play with music, not folk music. It's a musical with songs written by Christian Bush. I wrote a little bit of the lyrics, but he's written most of the lyrics and all the music. And it's a no kidding, music just appears suddenly and people start singing musical. It's it's not exactly Oklahoma. You know, it's a little more like Hadestown, uh, but it's still... It's still a musical, and we we must refer to it that way from now on. Right, right. Now, you are perfectly capable of writing songs, too. How did you feel about turning, relinquishing that responsibility? Uh, great, you know, because Christian is such a great songwriter. And also, it allowed me the sort of uh, a luxury that I don't usually have uh, of just concentrating on the story, the character development, the plot in general, the general ethos of it and the themes. Uh, but there too, I say waving my finger in the air, uh, Susan Booth, uh, Christian Bush, and uh, Amanda, our producer, uh, all three contributed such great ideas that I would now have to refer to this as the most collaborative theatrical project I've ever been involved in. So give us a little, uh, a little synopsis here, a little digest of uh, what happens in Darling Quarry. I will do my best. It starts with a murder. Perfect. Um, as uh, many Appalachian ballads do. Uh, a, a drunken young man is confronted by a woman and a baby, and she says, this is your baby, and what are you going to do about it? And what he decides to do about it is kill him. Um, he kills the woman, thinks he's killed the baby, goes to find something to dig up the ground to bury him with. And two quasi-supernatural characters, the crows, um, Alex, a crow especially, um, show up, get the baby who's still alive, spirited away. The drunk guy comes back, buries the bodies, pretty sure he's killed everybody. The Crows give the child to another woman, a childless woman in the mountains, and that's the end of scene one. <laughs> now, I, I note that there's there's mysterious visitors. There's a, a tiny Appalachian environment. Is Edward Foote anywhere in the uh, in the scenery in this? Is there any shape note singing? Uh, uh, there's no shape note singing. Uh, that's not as popular with everybody else as it is with me. I love it. Not everybody cares for it. But it's funny, and thank you for mentioning Edward Foote. And by the way, that is a Philip Depoy uh, creation. From uh, a couple of years ago at the Alliance Theater. When I wrote Edward Foote, what I said was I was writing an Appalachian trilogy. 
and Darlin' Corey is the third of that trilogy, so I'm, I've completed that task. Uh, no one but me cares about that, but I, I know that it was important to me. <laughs> the second one was called Fox Glove, was also commissioned by the Alliance Theater Teen Ensemble and performed by them. Uh, so I've now written uh, Edward Foote, which is essentially Oedipus Rex. Oedipus in, in Appalachia. Uh, Foxglove is Tristan and Isolde in the same environment. And now Darling Corey turns out to be a very Greek tragedy, uh, only set in the same environment. <laughs> uh, and a lot of fun to work with, a lot of fun fun to deal with those themes, um, f uh, parentage, uh, identity. I would say that the entire play for Corey, the character Corey, is a voyage of uh, self-discovery and self-actualization. Um, but I, I think I should probably add there's lots of singing and dancing and killing. <laughs> so that so that it won't just be a boring Greek play. You're not gonna you're not gonna be strictly didactic in this play. It's, I am not. Gonna be and no action. one is. That's right. There's plenty of action. Now uh, the theater is back live again, and this will be on the Coca Cola stage. Is this the first Alliance production on that stage? It is. It, it's the, not the first uh, production on that stage, since, but it's the first production since COVID. The first right. production in what would that make it? A, Full season and a half, I right. think. How does that feel? Uh, I mean, I think we're all a little uh, apprehensive about that <laughs> because there's no telling what people are gonna, how people are gonna take gathering now. But the uh, Mike, the the manager of the theater, talks uh, quite a bit about the air filtration system in the theater. I think the tickets are sold judiciously. And frankly, everybody is like kind of jumping out of their skin ready to, for a live theater production. So half the conversation that we've had in any production meeting has been about how excited we are to be back inside a theater. I would bet that there's a lot of pent up demand for this. I mean, I, I, your mouth to God's ear as the scene goes, but yeah, I would hope so too. I think like, like most of us, I'm ready to be back uh, going to live events, live theater. Uh, and so we're delighted that you made that opportunity possible for us, Philip DePoy. Thanks. I'm delighted to make that opportunity possible for myself. <laughs> I want to go back in the theater. I'm looking forward to seeing something. Uh, my beautiful and talented wife, Lee Noel, and I have been sequestered uh, for a very long time. I mean, for most of last year, we didn't go out of the house except to go into the yard. Um, and it's wonderful to think that we'll be out doing this work again. I couldn't be more happier about that. Fully vaccinated, of course. Entirely <laughs> vaccinated. I got to like, uh, I think seven shots. You know, so <laughs> I, I, we'll, we'll get a couple of boosters before we, <laughs> before we hit the theater. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you both. Thanks. It's a delight speaking with you. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have Christian Bush here, who is uh, better known as One Half Sugarland, uh, where uh, they were going to uh, sell out 12,000 seats last year until COVID showed up uh, at the Amorous Bank Amphitheater. Uh, but he has a, uh, a alter ego as, as a newly created uh, uh, 
fellow who writes uh, musicals or at least songs for, for theater. And this, this latest uh, effort uh, uh, is with Darlin Corey, where um, you got the, um, the, 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 uh, the go ahead from, from Susan Booth to, to uh, get going on this. And you wrote about four songs in a day from what I understand, Christian, is that accurate? That's an accurate uh, depiction of my overactive imagination and pure like knee-jerk reaction to how about you make something? <laughs> well, that's a great reaction. Yeah, I'm, I, it's, it's pretty typical for me. I, I get, I'm a very excitable human. Um, <laughs> so when you're like, especially when you've been locked in a box for as long as we have being, you know, creatures of being on stage, you know, that. They say, how about you create something that we need right now? And it looks like this. I, I just kind of dove into it, especially with the weird kind of mindset that COVID has kind of opened up, which is this strange combination of, well, you might as well try. What else do you have to do? And, uh, and then some other part where you're, you, I, I don't know if other creatives have had this experience, but for me, it's been true is, you're suddenly looking at your own um, creative self a lot more, especially when you're not in motion. It's very easy, I think, for, for people who make things to be in motion all the time. And because you're moving, you, you don't really come to terms with the fact that you make things up out of thin air for a living. <laughs> well, I wonder, you also look at your mortality when you're looking at a pandemic that, uh, um, is, uh, you know, uh, wiping out people all over the world. And you say to yourself, well, I, I might as well try this. Who knows how many other chances I'll get? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm always game for, you know, like anything that's um, creative adjacent to whatever I'm doing. So it, it's pretty likely if you write a, a, a movie or a TV show or something, and you're like, man, I, I wonder if Christian would be interested in doing some music for this. The question, the answer is usually yes. <laughs> right. Um, and and I, I, I'm one of those, those guys that it's always panicking that there's never going to be any more work, you know? So <laughs> I'm constantly saying yes and not really having any experience in doing the thing they're asking me for and, uh, and sort of faking it until I can make it. And in this case, Susan had known that she had asked me to do something like this about four years ago or three years ago with a playwright named Janice Schaefer. And we, we created a, uh, a musical out of a play that Janice was staging anyway. That was Troubadour. Yeah, it was Troubadour. So I think Susan understood that she had already kind of sprinkled fairy dust on me that I could possibly do this. But I, I think she intentionally buried the lead that this was going to be like <laughs> uh, 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 an honest to God, you know, top down big boy musical and a musical I just sort of yeah and i just people, bit into people just it. burst into song at the slightest uh, uh hint and it's it uh, defies normal relationships between people or at least the reality of the world oh dear lord that's terrifying to me <laughs> uh you know like who yeah I, the closest i've ever broken into song is like singing along to the radio or right like spontaneously happy in the shower that's about <laughs> that's about all I can think of that anyone would ever sing in real life. Um. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, 
An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. So this was new. Well, and I, it, was, it was interesting. I was listening to you speaking during that sort of peek behind the scenes that y'all staged at uh, the Alliance uh, the other day. And, uh, and your, your question to, to her uh, in, in one way or another was, does this have to be like a musical? <laughs> yeah, I think I said that to the country record label when they, I said, does this have to be like country music when it was shown? <laughs> And I, there's a real chance I probably said that to Atlantic Records in like the mid 90s. Like, does this have to be like a rock band or can it be a folk band? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I I do well with instructions, and um, I, which is I think why the people who have believed in me through the years have been gleefully uh, enjoying giving me none. You know, like, oh come on, Christian, you don't really need direction. This will be fine. Uh, what are they just yanking on your chain? Is that right? Well, I think that's the aw shucks response of you guys are kidding, right? And it's, uh, uh, I think it's an ongoing like imposter syndrome of am I qualified to do this or do they think I'm qualified? And if they do think, therefore, am I? And I, you know, it's that old, if your parents tell you you can do it, you think you can for a minute. Right. Um, I, that's still very active with me. So I, I respond to people who believe in me much the way a choo-choo train might respond to coal <laughs> being put in it. You know, like my, my whole train runs on believers. And if you believe in me, I'll, 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 I might try it. You're a little bit like Tinkerbell, I guess, as long as you're <laughs> clamping. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I got to give Susan Booth a lot of credit. She has made the monster that I am in theater so far. So, well, it's you, uh, uh, you know, d- despite any uh, um, uh, like modest protestations uh, to the to the contrary, it seems like you jumped right into the theater thing and you look like you're right at home. And uh, the uh, in particular with sort of the alacrity with which you started cranking songs out. So did, uh, can you describe about what, what exactly is going through your mind when you, when you get this little dulcimer out and you say, okay, I'm going to make some songs? Yeah. Um, you know, it's an odd feeling because uh, typically I, I, I need a lot of input to make the song. You know, if it's your own life, it's very easy to make it because you, right. you were there. You know, but um, a lot of times when you're talking about film or TV or in this case, pure story made up in your head, um, there's a lot of discussion that needs to go on, you know, for me to get an idea of the landscape in which we dwell, because in in some ways, what I've realized is the people who are, are putting together theater have these amazing skills of imagination and they look at me like I'm walking in with magic because none of them went to music school none of them know how to play things usually right and but they all know they all have a little bit of information about set design and lights and like they are all integrated into each other's departments but the music one is the one from their perspective is the one that's carrying the the weird voodoo you know and 
for me, I, I think what they do is voodoo. So I absorb every piece of like, what do you need the songs to do? And why are they singing? And yeah, I have so many questions, you know? That, oh yeah. That if, if they don't get answered, I fear that I'll give you something you can't use. And um, so, so once I started to get a, a little bit of an idea of how much they didn't know, I made up the rest. So um, it became a story early on of, of, um, of secrets you know, things they couldn't tell each other in a society, in a, in a town. Right. And I had, I had seen a, a, a series of musicals before COVID shut everything down that very much affected me. Um, I saw uh, David Burns, American Utopia. Uh-huh. And I saw Hades Town. Um, and I don't have a lot of experience with these things. So I felt like I needed to research. And those two had a lot of effect on me. And the Hades town really got me in a special spot where I, I, it was the first time I saw music on stage in a musical and thought to myself, Oh, wait a minute. I can write that. Well, I, it's interesting that the, uh, the, the topic, the area, the sort of the setting for this show, when you say I can write that, this is uh, about uh, a, uh, a little uh, town in Appalachian Mountains that, um, and you are from East Tennessee, and this is sort of like a language uh, that you speak. Uh, the, I would guess that that would be uh, a, a comfortable place to, to uh, stroll into. Yeah, it was. Um, and and I, I thank the Lord for that. Um, because it gave me at least some frame of reference that I was comp completely confident in. Like, I can tell you how the harmonies go. I can tell you how the melodies go. Right. Um, I can tell you how weird they are. I can tell you how many ways you hide what you really mean under the sentence you're saying. <laughs> um, because I grew up with it. And, <laughs> and when I say I grew up with it, you got to remember that the people in the mountains don't see a lot of advantage to, to technology. Uh -huh. They just don't because the things that were there worked fine. And unless you're talking about like a new way to, uh, to make biscuits, that's easier <laughs> or, or, or even if it's easier, kind of, it's not better. You know, they don't taste better. They taste worse. And you're like, well, why would I, you know, why would I do that? And right. um, we always joked that it was the uh, up where the satellite dishes grow because, you know, not even cable would be run out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, um, and then the old people told the stories that they remembered and told you and they, nobody ever wrote them down. You just heard them. And which means you, as you get older, you realize they probably changed the stories because they forgot a lot. So that the act of communicating is very, um, it has a lot of weird fill in the blank magic. Right? Well, and, and of course the, the, uh, the sort of the song that this, that this show, uh, that inspired this show is, uh, is a song that, that changes with each, sort of uh, generation that, that sings it. Uh, uh, Philip DePoy, the, the playwright, uh, uh, says uh, when he heard it from, a, from a, a traditional chair maker up in North Carolina back in 1969, 
that man said, well, his mother wrote it. And, Chris, and uh, of course, uh, Philip said, well, I knew it was 200 years old, but I didn't say that. But uh, the, the, the story that, that it tells in that, in that setting is different than the one it tells in a lot of other settings. You, however, are making your own songs rather than uh, using that song. And I'm curious how that song sort of interacts with what, uh, what you came up with. Sure. Uh, you know, I, 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 I told Philip that I, as much as I like the song, that the story's better. Right. And I was like, um, respectfully, uh, I'm here because I like to make songs that go on the radio. So uh, the reason that that song has existed for so long is that it's infectious. And the reason that no one knows it is because it's depressing. <laughs> um and uh my job is to kind of translate that and I, I i think in a very interesting way i absorbed actually a part of that song um there's a there's a refrain in it about um dig a hole in the meadow and uh dig a hole in the ground and lay darling cory down yeah and i and i really liked the lyric but i, I didn't like the melody and i, I I was like, wow, what can I do? And I, I had taken this wonderful kind of strange elective when I went to Emory as a senior uh, in the history of folk music. So I, I knew a lot of what Philip was referencing. And one of the things that you you do in, in honor of those kinds of things is you add your own verse, you know, much like the old crow medicine show added stuff to bob dylan but if you go ask bob he's like no man that's not my song and yeah, he, yeah and we know it is wagon wheel but yeah <laughs> so uh similarly i i i absorbed like two or three lines from the actual old you know traditional folk song darling cory into the final number after the ashes but i rewrote it in a way that maybe um the uh, the original depressing song doesn't really contain which is uh because i'm in the middle of covid and i need no more depression um <laughs> and you said you're sort of a, a a guy who looks for a little silver lining there and for sure the rest of us could look could use that too oh yeah so i you know i i love the jumping off point of these like these sort of monolithic things in our culture right um and, and uh, a folk song is well known as Darling Corey, especially in the folk circles, right, uh, or or at least the Appalachian traditional circles, is a it's a real cornerstone. It's not as much as maybe some other things that you might know, but um, Dooley or something. Yeah, but it, it is there, and and for people who are real aficionados, it's it's really important. And um, I, I certainly didn't want to uh, thumb my nose at that. I wanted to respect it. So uh, absorbing it and re envisioning it. And then I started telling Philip, I was like, well, if you really want to know what kind of weirdness is in the mountains, have you ever met these like weird seers? And, you know, my family had a seer we went to, and um, those are really just another word for psychics that also go to church, you know, like, um, <laughs> so, so we, we kind of made up these really weird uh, people in the town, which was loosely based on people I, I actually knew. Um, and then the then the whole thing got interesting. And Philip, you know, he does mysteries for a living. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm doing my version of what I do for a living, why don't we do the version of what you're doing for a living? 
you know, and talk about, at. yeah, talk about secrets. That's the, uh, uh, what made, uh, uh, one of the things that made it a little bit tricky to write about darling Corey, cause you don't want to turn loose of what some of the things are going to happen in, in the course of this show. Yeah. I mean, that's fun too. I mean, we're all Netflix culture now. I, you know, don't tell me the end. Let me go through every four, yes. all four seasons, you know, um, I want my own joy, no spoilers, um, but it, it is, but it, what's great about it is when's the last time a bunch of people from, and what's kind of cool about this, this is a bunch of people from Atlanta. Well, when's the last time a bunch of people from Atlanta made something that's gonna, you know, splash this big in a pond, you know? Yes. Um, so that's exciting. And, and withholding some of the stories, not wrong. I just, I kind of want that. It makes me want to go see it. There you go. Well, it's it, for for one last question. I'm a little curious about you. You spoke to me earlier about writing uh, uh, for theater and writing, say, uh, uh, for Sugarland, and about uh, how how you go about doing it. And uh, you you talked about the the two environments. Kind of really, uh, really, you use different kinds of tools when you're doing it. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, this was something I really absorbed from my brother, Brandon, who's the MD on this show. Musical he's, director. He's the musical director. And uh, it's his job to translate his his older brother's craziness, which is beautiful. Um, uh, and he is a hero in his own right. But the the way that he, he, he was talking to me about it and, and the way that I, I really buy into this um, is it, especially in, in commercial music like I do, especially in country music, I'm trying to communicate with a lot of people, many or most of which I'll never meet, you know, right. and, and might not ever see us on stage. But when you are on stage, you get this real sense that, um, that from the stage, I'm, 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 I, if you can imagine, I have a giant cartoon hammer <laughs> and, and I, I'm hammering the audience with this song is about being happy, you know, and, on every syllable, I'm banging you on the head with a giant <laughs> cartoon hammer, right? Uh, and then this song is about being sad. And uh, But what's joyous about that is that we're all doing it together. And the intention is, is that if you come to a Sugarland show or you come to a solo show or a dark water show, we're, we're giving you these very clear emotions, but we want you to have them together in a room with strangers, which right. makes you hopefully feel less alone in the theater if you can imagine the thing the tools that you're using are not as blunt or as forceful but they're very very powerful it's like you're you're using seven different tools to ex to communicate with an audience that you have this very complicated emotion of let's say joy and disappointment mixed with mixed with a little bit of fear and regret. And that's a very hard thing to communicate to everyone at the same time. Right. Except the theater does that. Whereas uh, it can accomplish it because it's controlling what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're hearing. And it's controlled the story in which surrounds it right up to that very moment. So right. it's, it, it's, it's something that no other kind of live performance actually does. 
Well, it sounds like you're you're kind of sold on this. You uh, uh, are. Uh, uh, I would imagine this won't be the last uh, uh, the last bunch of songs you write for a show. <laughs> you know, funny enough, um, it, it is not. And uh, there is a, a follow up musical to Troubadour that Janice Schaefer, the the playwright, and I had yes had penned, and has now been also optioned. So it is going to open in Florida, in Miami, in February. It's called Me Before You, and it's weirdly about the Kavanaugh testimony. And yet it is connected in somehow to Troubadour or? Uh... Yeah, it's the same creators. And uh, so it's myself and Janice. And, right. And, and as a result, where Darlin' Corey kind of is an extension of Troubadour from a, an aesthetic point of view, uh -huh. Because, you know, you're staying in a very roots and historical space right? Uh, as your landscape, or, or at least those are the tools you're using to tell the story. Um, in this case, with Me Before You, Janice and I uh, created a world that existed right as everyone in the world watched the Kavanaugh testimony on television. Right, right. Well, but it doesn't involve a, a fellow and his father playing the guitar in, in uh, country honky tonks. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But uh, if, if you do have some sort of uh, historical like need for that, that music is actually going to be released in the next few months. So, oh, yeah. Maybe. Well, and of course, people can get uh, an EP of four of the songs that you've already uh, uh, recorded for uh, Darlin' Corey with... Uh, with Dark Water, is that correct? With your, which is, yeah, I, and Brandon. Yeah, I, and Brandon and Benji, yeah. Uh, I, I started asking this question recently of, if we're doing these musicals, can't I release the music before we get to the show? And, and many times a show in development, especially in a, a world premiere like this, the songs change a lot. Right. And um, I think there was a little bit of concern over, well, maybe you ought not release everything because we're not sure everything's gonna go. <laughs> So um, you have four numbers from it, but I wanted, I wanted fans, especially in the music world that maybe haven't had this kind of entree into theater. I wanted them to have the same kind of buildup that I get when I'm a fan of a, of a band. You know, I want to hear right. the music while I'm in the parking lot on the way to the show. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, the uh, it's it's, it's a great, uh, uh, it's a great way to whet your appetite and uh, you can see uh, a couple of videos uh, from from those uh, online, uh, including uh, After the Ashes, which has uh, uh, got some great mandolin in it, um, presented uh, by one Christian Bush. And it's uh, 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 it will give you a sense of what you're going to uh, see at that show. Although when you had that chorus of uh, voices with you in that in that brief demonstration, that was a powerful experience. Right. I, it truly is amazing. Um, what uh, these uh, actors and, and uh, have been able to achieve and throwing that many voices at a song is just, it, it, it'll make the hair on your arm stand up. You know? Oh yeah. I love it. I, it get ready for some uh, arm hair standing uh, 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 when this show opens on September 8th. And Christian Bush, I very much appreciate you taking a minute with us. Thank you, my friend. And uh, thank you for spreading the word. Sure enough.
When Jennifer Heinmiller inherited the million-word project that would become the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English, its principal author had blown past several deadlines, lost his publisher, and then died. The dictionary was a unique but expensive undertaking. It represented 85 years of research that would eventually produce a 1,225-page volume weighing about 12 pounds. Read the rest of Bo Emerson's look at this huge volume and find out how it's helping preserve a culture on AJC.com. The Friends experience may be leaving Atlanta, but a similar experience is coming to celebrate PBS's Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey The Exhibition arrives September 25th in the same shopping complex where the Friends experience is wrapping up September 26th, but in a different space. Tickets are $36 to $39 and the exhibit will be open seven days a week. It runs through January 17th at 1155 Mount Vernon Highway in Sandy Springs. Find out what to expect and how to get tickets on Rodney Ho's radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. Core Dance has received a $400,000 gift from an anonymous donor that will aid the Contemporary Dance Organization in producing its 42nd season, which kicks off in September. The donor provided the funds specifically to support the artistry and creative direction of Sue Schroeder, co-founder and artistic director of Core Dance. Part of the donation will be used to create Jolt, a multidisciplinary immersive arts experience Schroeder is developing. This story is part of the AJC's partnership with Arts ATL, a nonprofit organization that plays a critical role in educating and informing audiences about Metro Atlanta's arts and culture. Read the rest of this story and more stories from Arts ATL on AJC.com. In any season, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton has a strange way of scrutinizing the American experiment in all its passion and frailty from revolutionary times to the present day. The much-decorated Broadway musical about founding father Alexander Hamilton does not just describe an era of great divisiveness. It was born into one. Hamilton returned to the Fox Theater recently, where it will continue through September 26th. Read Wendell Brock's review of this latest touring production on AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.